Uh, our sermon text this morning is uh, Matthew 10, uh, verses 16 through 42, and you can find that in your pew Bible on page 815. Hear the word of God. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And yet, not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. The word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.
There's not a single one of us, Lord Jesus, who makes it through the mesh of that chapter unconvicted. No one of us can, no human being, only you, in fact, can make it through the mesh of that chapter. None of us can lay claim on the basis of our own lives that we are worthy of you. And so we pray that now you would come by your spirit and teach us that underneath your glory, underneath your power, your authority, your ultimacy, your worth, you would grant that we, your people, would be strengthened, that our vision of you would be clarified, that your call on our life would be more clearly understood, and that we would receive from you on high power to live in a way that brings you glory. We ask for those who have come, whom you have brought today, who are not yet your disciples, that in your great mercy, just as you have restored us to yourself in such gentleness and kindness, that you would continue that great work of showing your goodness by saving them today. Come and preach peace, Lord Jesus, to those who are near and to those who are far away. We pray in your name. Amen. You know, whether we're Christians or non-Christians, unless we get the story of life straight, uh, nothing else will be. Um, unless a story is straight, nothing else will be clear. And let me tell you what the story is. Let me summarize it this way. It, the story of life as the Bible presents it to us is this, that it, Jesus is anything if Jesus is anything, he is absolutely everything, or he is worse than nothing, but what he cannot be is merely something that is either indifferent or unimportant. He is either everything, or he is worse than nothing. But what he cannot be is just something or someone who is mildly unimportant or indifferent. That's the point that C.S. Lewis is making. You have to make your choice about Jesus Christ. Either you have to run toward him in humble submission with all the energy and grace and strength that you have, or to submit to him, or you have to oppose him with every fiber in your being. Because if, you, if your response is not one of those two things, you have not heard him. And one of the gifts of Matthew 10 is that this is, Jesus says things in this chapter that we, we would want to put in the back, right, of the book. This is not that this Jesus is not recognizable. And there are some things here that I bet if you asked, if you didn't tell, them where it, didn't tell people where it came from, you might think, Muhammad said it. I haven't come to bring peace but a sword. Jesus doesn't fit our categories, and there's no getting around it. Matthew 10 is very hard. It is bracingly, gut-wrenchingly hard. And as I've thought about this chapter over the last month and a half or so, I keep picturing a very large canvas and that, that tells a much larger story. And, and the, the commands and the descriptions of himself that Jesus gives us in Matthew 10 are part of that story. But unless we understand that larger story of which Matthew 10 is a part, we will not understand Matthew 10. 
We have to know what the story is. We have to know what that larger story is. And the point of the story is this. If Jesus is anything, he is everything, or he is worse than nothing, but what he cannot be is merely something that is either indifferent or unimportant. So this morning, I want to think with you about what is the story of the Christian life. And I want to think about it with you through the lens of three questions. The first question from our text, what do we think the story of the Christian life is? In other words, how does Matthew 10 push against some of our assumptions? What do we think the story of the Christian life is? What does Jesus think the story is? And finally, what does the table show us the story is? What do we think it is? What does Jesus think it is from Matthew 10? And then what does the table show us the story is? So let's look first at what what do we think the story is? And you know, the thing about human beings is we live the story we believe, not the story we say we believe. Every human being is by definition a narrator. Did you know that about yourselves? You're narrating a vision of the story. Every person lived. This, this is true whether you're Christian or non-Christian, okay? You, you have a sense. It may be deeply embedded. It may be, it may be embedded in all sorts of assumptions that you take for granted and that you never put on the table and never examine. But assumptions or conclusions or convictions about the nature of reality, what is the purpose of life if there is one? What is the plot line of life at a macro level, and therefore, what is the plot line of your life? And what you actually live is what you believe. Everyone is narrating their vision of the story, what they understand. The way we live, if you want to know what you believe, look at the way you live, not what you say. Okay? And so the only, if everyone's a narrator and everyone has convictions about what the story is in life, then the important question is, are you living according to the right story? Or the wrong story. But what you, won't, what you won't avoid is that your life is telling a story. Okay? You're a human being. That's what human beings do. So the question I want to ask my Christian brothers and sisters this morning in particular is this. What is the vision of the Christian life? What is your understanding of the Christian life? What is the nature of the story of the Christian life? Is it more like an adventure story, or is it a quest? Is the Christian life an adventure story, or is it the story of a quest? Now, what, what's the, we'll talk about what the difference between those two is in a minute, but those are two very different kinds of stories, though they involve, they each involve pursuits of something, but they involve pursuits of different things for very different reasons. And I want to set them before you as kind of a diagnostic way uh, for you to identify where you are. What is it that you believe the story of the Christian life is about? Let's think first about this first question. Is the Christian life fundamentally an adventure story? And what do I mean by an adventure story? Well, you know how an adventure works. An adventure is the pursuit of something that will enlarge your life. Okay, so you, it's usually experience of some kind. So you leave home and go somewhere to get something or some experience, and the purpose is so that you can enlarge your life. Your life will be enriched 
uh, by this experience or this acquisition that you've acquired. What's interesting about an adventure, and there's nothing wrong with adventures, by the way. Adventures are fun. Listen, I jumped out of an airplane. That was an adventure. This is the first time, by the way, in my whole life that I could not hear myself scream. <laughs> because the wind rushing past my ears, the first thing I've ever discovered in life that is louder than me yelling, okay, was the wind rushing by my ears at 130 miles an hour. Okay? There's nothing wrong with adventures, but the question is, is that what the Christian life is? Because in an adventure, what you're doing is you're, you're going out, and your purpose is to enlarge your life. So I, could, I jumped out of an airplane so I could tell you this story three years later. Okay? And the point is that an adventure enlarges a story that's already in progress. Your story, the story in which I am the central character. The story that's about me, in which I am the hinge on which the story turns. The story in which I am the protagonist, and all the strands of the plot come together in me. And in an adventure, not only am I the hero of the story, but in the end, right, I'm the author of the story. Because I'm shaping the story according to what I want. And I'm trying to decorate my life with something. I have a vision of a preferred plot line. And in that plot line of life, I'm the central character. Everything comes through me. Now, for Lord of the Rings fans, and by the way, just to get your appetite whetted, I've got something later for you, okay? But Lord of the Rings fans, The Hobbit is coming out in December, a movie. And the way the Lord of the Rings is set up, this is very interesting. The Hobbit is an adventure story. Bilbo is, the, his autobiography in The Hobbit is entitled There and Back Again. That's his story. He goes away for an adventure and he comes back enriched and enlarged. And you know, that's a great story. It's a wonderful story. They're going to make three movies out of one book. I don't know how they're going to do that. Adventures are very rich, but you know what? What's interesting about the way Tolkien wrote The Lord of the Rings is that Bilbo is not the hero of The Lord of the Rings because the story that, that Tolkien really wanted to tell is not about an adventure. It's about a quest. Now, how do you know if you're thinking about the Christian life as an adventure story? Well, it's very simple. You can tell at the heart level if this is how you're thinking about the Christian life because here's what it'll look and feel like. It'll look like Jesus is fitting into your story. It'll look like Jesus has to fit into the boundaries of your life and not the other way around. In an adventure story, Jesus relates to your story as a subplot relates to the main plot line. And so Jesus and his church, and his word, and his mission are always subordinate to your preferred plot line, and Jesus relates to you in the way that a supporting actor would relate to a lead actor, the way that a character would relate to the author. And that means that you will be measuring Jesus by you. So if or I will be. Let me just put in the first person because, listen, I'm guilty of this. I will measure Jesus by me if I think of the Christian life as an adventure story. If, if I, in my determination, 
which is always flawless, right? And never self-centered, never self-referential, always based on all the information and a dispassionate evaluation of every fact. Right? That's me. If I conclude that Jesus is not coming through for me, if he is not serving the plot line that matters most to me, my kids, my marriage, my job, my health, my safety, my money, if I conclude that he is not serving those, if I conclude that he is not coming through for me, if his subplot and his requirements, which interfere with so much of my main plot line, if he gets in the way of my main plot line, and I conclude that either he, he hasn't come through for me, or he isn't going to come through for me, or he won't come through for me, well, then I'll loosen my grip. And not only will I evaluate Jesus by me, I'll evaluate the Bible by me as well. I'll read the Bible in a way that says, you know, I, I'm not getting anything out of this. Uh, this is pushy. You know, I, I want to get up and walk out of the sanctuary because Jesus is talking about things in Matthew 10 that I don't like. Listen, friends, if God exists, wouldn't you expect him to have things to say to you that you don't want to hear? Of course you would. He's God. But you see, if the Christian life is an adventure story, right, everything is going to be measured by us. All the plot lines have to come through our main plot line, which is our heart. But what if it's a quest? A quest is totally different from an adventure. In an adventure... I am seeking something to enlarge my life. Those things outside of me are sought and pursued as my servants and with me as the master to enlarge my life. But in a quest, I am pursuing something not to enlarge me and my life, but I'm pursuing something that is larger than my life. Something that's larger than my life in which my life, in a quest, I see my life as the subplot that serves the main plot line. If the Christian life is a quest, I am not the author, I am not the hero, I am not the main plot line. There is another, there is a story above my story, there is a story beneath my story, my story is part of a much larger canvas of which I am privileged to be a part, but of which I am not the center. I am not the point of the story in a quest. The story is the point of my life. In a quest, right, my life serves someone else's story. But the key thing about a quest that separates it from an adventure is this is that by its very nature, a quest is sacrificial. A quest, this is just so amazing, a quest gains by losing. Because in a quest, by definition, you serve a purpose larger than your life. You serve a person larger than your life. You sacrifice. You gain by losing. You give up your autonomy. You give up your comfort. You give up your control. You give up your independence. And th because there is something outside of you, larger than you, that is worthier than you. 
and you spend your life pursuing it. And when we put this into a Christian context, it's not a thing, it's a person, right, who's larger than us, a king who is so much more glorious than we are. You see, if we translated this idea of adventure and quest into Jesus' language at the end of verse 39, right, um, we'd come up with this, that an adventure is somebody who is finding their life. If you look at the, at the Christian life as an adventure where Jesus is available to you to enlarge your life and to serve the main plot line of your life and your preferences so that basically your story can stay intact and Jesus is there to supplement and enhance and adorn and decorate your story, then you need to understand that Jesus' evaluation of your understanding of the Christian life is that you are pursuing him in a way that is finding your life, and in the end, that will mean you lose your life. Whoever finds his life will lose it. It means you're looking for your life. The irony is that you will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's the person who regards the Christian life as a quest. Now, in The Lord of the Rings, there's a great scene near the end. Sam and Frodo, right, they are on a quest. They have left the Shire. They love the Shire. They love where they came from, but they know they've got to destroy this ring because if they don't destroy this ring, then the Shire will be destroyed. But they have no idea whether they're actually going to make it. They sacrifice their safety. They sacrifice their independence. They sacrifice all their loves and all their lives so that they can serve a much larger story than the story of their lives. And at this critical point near the end of the story, Frodo and Sam get separated. Frodo, who is the ring bearer, gets, gets captured by the orcs. And they bring them into their orc castle. And the orcs are the really bad guys, for those of you who don't know. They're ruined beings, and they're evil. And they now have Frodo. They now have Frodo. And Sam is separated from them. And Sam's got to come into this castle and try to get Frodo free. There's, it's so dark. And Sam, Sam's all by himself, and he doesn't know where to go, but he, he goes into the castle, and Tolkien describes it this way. He's, he gets to this dead end in the castle, and he doesn't know where to go, and the doors are all closed around him. And Tolkien says, at last, weary and feeling finally defeated, he sat on a step below the level of the passage floor and bowed his head into his hands. It was quiet, horribly quiet. The torch that was already burning low when he arrived sputtered and went out, and he felt the darkness cover him like a tide. He's in utter darkness, and he's in a dead end, and he feels like he's lost. So if you just look at his individual story, it looks like a failure, right? And then softly, to his own surprise, there at the vain end of his long journey and his grief, moved by what thought in his heart he could not tell, Sam began to sing of what? Of the larger story. His voice sounded thin and quavering in the cold, dark tower, the voice of a forlorn and weary hobbit that no listening orc could possibly mistake for the clear song of an elven lord. 
He murmured old childish tunes out of the Shire and snatches of Mr. Bilbo's rhymes that came into his mind like fleeting glimpses of the country of his home. He's thinking initially about home. He's thinking backwards, okay? And then suddenly new strength rose in him. Now he looks another way. And his voice rang out while words of his own came unbidden to fit the simple tune. Though here at journey's end I lie in darkness buried deep beyond all towers strong and high beyond all mountains steep above all shadows rides the sun and stars forever dwell. I will not say the day is done nor bid the stars farewell. You see, where Sam gets power for his story to persevere is by looking at the larger story of which his story is a part. He looks up out of the darkness that he's in. He doesn't deny that the darkness exists but he sees that the darkness in which he finds himself is not the full or final story. And unless you have a conviction about a story that is larger than yours, friend, you will not be able to persevere. If you think the story is just about you, you will not make it. The Christian life is not an adventure. And so, friends, I ask you to consider, is it possible, is it possible that the reason we do not experience more power of Christ, more power of Christ and more the power of his gospel, is because we are living, we have committed ourselves to living according to the wrong story. A story that looks at the Christian life as essentially about us and Jesus as an honored appendage to that story, an honored, cherished subplot to that story. If Jesus is anything, he is absolutely everything or he is worse than nothing. But the one thing he cannot be is just merely something that is either indifferent or important. He must be embraced or he must be opposed with every fiber of your being. There is no medium alternative. So what does Jesus think the story is? Well, he thinks the story is about him. And here we go again. He thinks the story is not just a little bit about him. He thinks it's totally about him. And our view of the story will be in direct proportion to our view of Jesus and to Jesus' view of himself. If I have a small view of the story, I'm going to have a small view because I have a small view of Jesus. But Jesus did not have a small view of himself, and therefore he had a very large view of the story. He, he says some remarkable things in this chapter that we're going to get into in much more detail next week. But what I want you to notice is he claims absolute loyalty from us. He puts himself at the center of our highest and deepest loyalties, and he claims an identity for himself that is just astonishing. Notice verses 16 through 18. He claims an identity for himself that 
that calls us that if we understand who he is, we will be willing to endure uh, the opposition of civil and religious authorities, even to the point of our death. Now, does that not shake you? He's saying, for my name's sake, you will endure these things. And then, uh, verses 24 through 33, he goes into much greater detail. He says, so have no fear of them. They're gonna, they call me the devil. What do you think they're going to call you? But have no fear of them. Don't, don't fear. Don't waste your time fearing those who can kill the body but cannot do anything to, to the soul in hell. And if you deny me before men, I'm going to deny you before my Father in the heavenly court. But if you confess me before men in the earthly court, I will confess you in the heavenly court. That is a degree of loyalty that he is calling for that shows us that he has the highest view of himself. And it gets deeper than that because he says, I need to be more important than your family. Right? Whoever loves a father or mother more than me, right? Verse 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Friends, if he is anything, he is absolutely everything, or he is worse than nothing, but what he cannot be is merely something indifferent or unimportant. The only person, see what Jesus is saying? You see, in verse 37, what he's saying is, I am more important than the fifth commandment. And the only person in the universe who can say that is the one who is entitled to your and my obedience under the first commandment, God. But more than that, Jesus claims an identity for himself that is shocking. In verse 23, he calls himself the Son of Man. And that is a loaded Old Testament term, and it has two meanings, and Jesus means both of them. It means that he's a human being, he's a man, but it means that he is also at the same time much more than a man. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 7, if you would, and I'll show you what Jesus is invoking. This is, by the way, uh, Son of Man is Jesus' favorite name for himself. In Matthew's gospel, he refers to himself as the Son of Man 28 times. And in the, in the four gospels, he refers to himself as the Son of Man over 90 times. So this is, the, this is the preferred way that Jesus has to describe himself. And in Daniel 7, which is one of the high point prophecies of the Old Testament, Daniel is given a vision, right, of a figure called the Son of Man who, who comes before the Ancient of Days, who is essentially the father figure on his throne. And look at verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, a man in heaven. And he approaches, he came to the Ancient of Days, who is God on his throne. A man, now think about that image biblically. A man coming to the throne of God and was presented before him. Now, before the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ and the ascension of Christ, you would assume rightly within the biblical frame of reference that that encounter could never be safe for the man. Look at how God responds to him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. See, Jesus is saying that I'm absolutely everything. I am the one who is going to receive from the Father when I ascend to his right hand after my resurrection. I am the one who's going to receive all authority in heaven and on earth. And so you must give me your highest loyalty because of who I am. And now the amazing thing is this. How is it that Jesus comes into his kingdom? You look at verse 34 and you think, oh, he's going to come on the earth. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have come to not bring peace, but a sword. And you think, oh, sounds like another crazy religious zealot who's going to break out holy war on the earth and he's going to slay all these people and he's going to grab territory and the way he's going to get the kingdoms is by gaining them, by seizing them by power. And the wonder of Jesus Christ, my friends, the amazing truth that's at the heart of the gospel is that Jesus is a conqueror. He is a conquering king. But the way he conquers is by being conquered. He comes to bring a sword, but what is his sword? What is the sword that Jesus comes that disrupts the peace of the world? What is the sword that Jesus wields that separates people? It's not a physical sword. It's his cross. It is him bringing the sword of God's justice down upon himself, which was to Greeks foolishness and to the Jews an offense beyond all measure. Because here is God being crucified for the sins of men. But friends, that is the wonder at the heart of the gospel. Jesus conquers by being conquered. Jesus succeeds at Calvary in a quest at the price of his own life. The reason quests are the best story is because reality is ultimately the story of a quest. The reason we love a story like Lord of the Rings or any other story that involves a sacrifice in pursuit of some higher or larger good is because that is the DNA of reality. And Jesus is the fulfillment that all the stories before him pointed toward and that all the good stories afterwards point back toward that at the heart of reality, the big story is this vision of the pursuit of something so great and so wonderful. And that's the story the table tells us. It tells us about the quest of quests. It reminds us as the people of Christ that reality is the story of God's own quest for the restoration of his creation and the reconciliation of him and his holiness with his image bearers. And there's two quests that this table tells us about. First, the quest of Jesus in the service of his people. And that's where we have to begin this morning, right? This table is about Jesus' quest in the service of his people. He came and sacrificed himself, not for the enlargement of his life, 
but for the enlargement of his Father's glory and the enlargement of his people, right? He, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins, Matthew 121. Uh, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's the Son of Man, Matthew 20, 28. And so the first and most important side of this table is that Jesus is coming again to us. He's coming to us this morning to remind us that he has succeeded in his quest. He has carried our humanity through the judgment of God and vindicated it in his resurrection and brought it and advanced it all the way to the Father's throne in heaven. And he, above all towers, strong and dark, beyond all mountains steep, above every darkness and shadow on this planet earth, he shines and nothing can reach him and therefore nothing can reach you. He hosts a table in the valley of the shadow of death where we are and we can eat and feast with freedom because we know he has defeated already and completely all our enemies. But then we come to the table too. See, we're on a quest in service of our Lord, are we not, brothers and sisters? Our lives are about his story. Our lives serve his story. When we're thinking right and our vision is cleared, we see that the purpose of our lives is to serve his story. And so we come to him this morning to be assured of our inheritance in him, to, be, to have our eyes lifted up, right? Lifted up again beyond all towers strong and high, right? Beyond all mountains steep, Right To see that above every shadow, beyond all shadows, the sun is riding high. And to look forward to that day when we will sit down with him at a much greater table. And we will feast with him face to face. With all our brothers and sisters. And the quest will at last be over. And we will be where the sun rides high forever, where the stars forever dwell, where we will never have to say the day is done and we will never have to bid the stars farewell. If Jesus is anything, he is absolutely everything or he is worse than nothing. But what he cannot be is just merely something. Let's pray. Lord, our lives are yours. You've bought them. You made them, so you own them. You bought them, so you own them again by ransoming them. And now we present them to you as living sacrifices. Come, come and knit our hearts closer to yours, we pray in your name.